Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From rare comets to mysterious dust clouds and radiation belts in this week's The Grange Point. It's our 300th episode, and whether you're a new listener or one who's been along the journey the whole time, this week we're going to return to our roots. And no, I don't mean young science organisations, but in fact, hanging out at the Lagrange Point. We're going to talk about stories of objects lurking in Lagrange Points around our solar system and beyond. Now, in any multi-body orbital system, there exist these points where because of the complicated mathematics between the relationships of these orbiting bodies, they end up with points that are neither falling towards one object or the other. These stable points we call Lagrange points, named after the discoverer and formalizer of the mathematics. And around the Earth and the Moon, if you consider them as a system, there are five points of stability, where all the gravitational forces are perfectly balanced, which means if you hang out at that particular Lagrange point, named L1 through to L5, you basically won't move in any particular direction. You'll basically float along for the ride. Now, Lagrange points 4 and 5 actually form an equal-sided triangle with the Earth and the Moon. And they move around the Earth as the Moon moves along its orbit. But in reality, L4 and L5 aren't 100% stable. And that's because the relationship between the Earth and the Moon and their orbits is governed by a larger body, the Sun which also plays into it as well. So whilst L4 and L5 and all the other Lagrange points in the Earth-Moon system are stable with respect to that, when you throw in the Sun, it gets a lot more complicated. But nevertheless, if you think about them, they're these gravity wells where objects can find themselves trapped and dragged along for the ride, along with the Earth and the Moon. Now, in 1961, a Polish astronomer by the name of Kazimierz Kordoleski noted some really odd things happening in the Earth's L5 point. What he found was some really unusual but incredibly faint dust clouds sort of collecting around where the L5 point would be in space. And that makes sense because if you consider the Lagrange points as basically gravity wells that will trap anything and everything, cosmic or interstellar dust is one of those things that over time would eventually build up there, a bit like dust in a corner of a busy room. But the problem was, when Kordoleski first discovered these, it was incredibly faint and very, very hard to see. We are, after all, talking about dust lurking in the solar system, not incredibly big objects that you could try and point your telescope at. So there have been further reports over time, since 1961, but scientists have a long time doubted the veracity or the existence of these dust clouds, now called Kordoleski clouds. Now, in a paper published earlier this year by another group of Hungarian researchers, led by Gabor Horvath from the Edivers Lorand University, actually went through and did the complicated math and said, look, if these clouds existed, this is how they would form and this is how it would work and where we could look for traces of them. Now, what they were interested in in particular were how you could use polarizing light filters which are basically the same thing found in your sunglasses, something that scatters different forms of light. When you scatter or reflect light, you can have it be more or less polarised depending on the angle of the scattering. And that makes for a good idea. 
The Hungarian research team thought, well, perhaps you could use this method, knowing how these dust clouds might form, to actually look for a certain type of polarised light. So instead of trying to spot a speck of dust in the abyss of space, you could look for a certain type of light that could really only come from something scattering or reflecting the light in a certain way. And they used this idea to then try to find these mysterious dust clouds that were hanging around L5. So they used a camera lens in a CCD detector and attached it to Judith Slizabalok's private observatory in Hungary. Now the scientists took long exposure photos of the purported locations of the Kudalisky cloud, in particular the L5 point. And when they analysed the polarising light coming back, they found what would be evidence of it being reflected off dust, which wouldn't make sense if it had just been travelling through space without bouncing off something. The observed patterns that they found matched the predictions made by the model, or the theoretical uh, computer-analysed version of the Kotelisky cloud. But they also line up with the original observation of Kotelisky himself six decades earlier. Importantly, Horvath's group were able to rule out that there were any other things present in the area, maybe optical artefacts, maybe motion of other bodies moving through the cloud that could have caused the same scattering of light that they found. Which means, more or less, Kudalewski's idea is confirmed, which is incredibly interesting, because that means the L5 and the L4 points are actually collecting these dust clouds around Earth, meaning that we may not just have a moon and a whole bunch of satellites and other orbital junk surrounding us like asteroids, we also have a trail of dust clouds that now can, we can confirm are Kordeleski clouds. And this is a great bit of research done out of Poland and published in the monthly proceedings of the Rural Astronomic Society earlier this year. Now, similar to the Lagrange points, which are basically gravity wells formed by the complex interactions between orbital bodies, there exists weird wells which trap radiation around our planet, caused by the complex interaction of electromagnetic fields. Now, these are called the Van Allen radiation belts in the areas around the world. And on Earth, they are basically zones, donut-shaped rings surrounding the Earth extending out, which are formed by the Earth's electromagnetic field and these areas are actually where charged particles can get trapped sort of concentrating all of this radiation in one spot and what's particularly interesting about that and just like the case of the dust clouds that we talked about earlier is that this charged radiation sort of hanging out of the Van Allen belts can uh, wreak havoc to a variety of things in particular geostationary satellites because the typical geostationary orbital level lies inside one of the Van Allen radiation belts. Now, when we were first learning and starting out in space travel, we weren't sure if the first astronauts would make it all the way to the moon and would survive a trip through the Van Allen belts. It was thought that perhaps the radiation would be so high that it would kill them. Now, fortunately, it's not that severe, and we can deal with it. But the Van Allen belts still provide a very interesting place to study, a lot of interesting things that are going on around the Earth. 
Because they live in these electromagnetic zones, which have curious behavior, they also have the perfect place to study space weather. That is exactly what a new partnership research done by UK and US universities have embarked upon, looking at the effects of major geomagnetic storms as viewed from a satellite hanging out in a Van Allen belt. So to talk a little bit about space weather, we first have to understand some of the common type of space events. That can happen, causing havoc for satellites and sometimes even down here on Earth. Now, as we know, the Earth is surrounded by an electromagnetic field. And sometimes we'll get things bombarding us from outside our orbit. Maybe that's solar wind, particles from the sun being ejected out at a particularly high speed that make their way to the Earth's magnetic field that then get bombarded and spread across and basically, the magnetic field shields us from this bombardment, say, hitting the surface. But an example of it is what causes the beautiful phenomena such as an aurora, like the aurora borealis or the aurora australis if you're down here in the southern hemisphere. So space weather can be particularly beautiful, but if you're a satellite hanging out up in orbit, they can also be particularly devastating. And one of the most scary things for a satellite is, well, a geomagnetic storm. And that is where the whole Earth's magnetosphere gets really rocked and buffeted by a very large sudden ejection of solar wind that actually causes a shockwave to travel and then ripple out across the solar system, bombarding with Earth's magnetic field and causing it to basically compress and squeeze our magnetosphere, the electromagnetic sphere around the Earth, and leading to all kinds of strange and wobbly interactions. Now, we've first known about these since 1806, when we had detailed recordings from Alexander von Humboldt, and it can cause all kinds of weird behavior. But great geomagnetic storms can be of very particular interest if you're a satellite, because it could destroy you. But are you at more risk from a large major storm, or perhaps just strong headwinds? Not a huge storm, but not a gale or a hurricane in terms of solar wind levels, but just a stiff, strong breeze. And that's what these researchers the British Antarctic Survey were trying to determine. Conventional wisdom was, of course, the large hurricane-level events of massive solar wind ejections or geostorms would be the most dangerous. But they analysed five years' worth of satellite data. And what they found is that the electronic radiation levels in a satellite and geostationary orbit was actually a lot worse, not in the big sudden shockwaves of a geomagnetic storm, but in the more sustained strong solar wind events. Because what ends up happening is even after the solar wind dies down, basically a long sustained burst of solar wind being particularly strong actually charges up all of the particles in the area, including those on electrical components in the satellites. They get charged up to dangerously high levels over a sustained period of time and remain charged, as do the particles around them, for a many more days, even up to five days after the solar wind itself has stopped blowing. And that is particularly damaging. If you compare it to a large geomagnetic storm, well, the, the Earth's magnetic field takes a big hit and gets distorted and shifted around, and on Earth, there's a huge sudden spike in radiation. But up in the orbit, it doesn't really change that much. By comparison, a large, fast solar wind event all of that solar wind gets sort of concentrated in areas like the Van Allen belts, charges up all the particles around it, leading to, well, the satellites having a pretty statically charged, not fun time. 
Now, of course, we shield and protect satellites to make sure that they can withstand such charging. And you normally have to use around 2.5 millimeters of aluminum to actually reduce the amount of static charge to safe levels to actually accommodate for some of this large buildup that they noted. And it's particularly interesting because it shows that the risks to satellite aren't these big one-off events like large geomagnetic storms that we worry about, but more just the sustained strong solar winds can lead to a large amount of problems. So if you want to study space weather and you want to get make your satellites be safe, hanging out in the Van Allen belts is the way to go. But you need to make sure you have enough static protection to protect you from all that charged radiation from a stiff solar breeze. This research was published in the journal Space Weather. With lead authors Richard Horn, Mark Phillips, Sarah Glowett, Nigel P. Meredith, Alex Hands, and Keith Ryden, and Wen Lee. So the phrase once in a blue moon doesn't normally actually refer to a moon literally being blue, even in the actual proper sense of the word. It generally means a rare or uncommon event. And that comes from the fact that a blue moon appeared. Uh, basically, a blue moon was a second full moon in a calendar month. And because our years aren't neatly perfectly divided into the lunar cycle, at least in the Western calendar system, you end up with these odd times where you have an additional full moon in a month, and they're referred to as a blue moon. Now, actually, the moon can sometimes literally appear blue, but that's more often due to something being present in our atmosphere that would distort or change the colour of the moon, rather than a literal blue object in space. But let's talk now about something that is more like the former than the latter. Now, this research was done by an international team led by Teddy Coretta, who's a doctoral student at the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Observatory. And Coretta published and presented these results in October at the 50th Annual Meeting of the American Astronomical Society's Division for Planetary Science in Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, what Teddy Coretta was looking at was a particular object in space called Patheon, uh, which is given the number 3200. Now, it's a bizarre asteroid that sometimes behaves like a comet. The rest of the time, actually, as a no, it's an asteroid. But it's even more enigmatic than even thought when they started off this research project. And this research project was really done using telescopes in both Hawaii and Arizona. And they were studying the sunlight reflected off the surface of Patheon, which, curiously enough, is known to be blue in colour. Now... Obviously, blue asteroids are pretty rare, and how they work is they reflect more light in the blue part of the spectrum than anything else, and they make up a tiny fraction of all known asteroids. Most asteroids are normally a dull grey, perhaps some all the way to a brownish red, if you can imagine like the surface of Mars, which would be from things like iron content. But it all based on the material of the planet, or in this case, the asteroid in question. So what is given Pathian its unusual blue shade? 
In fact, it's one of the bluest of all other similarly colored asteroids or comets in the solar system. And it, it's very, very close to the sun, which means that its surface can heat up to about 800 degrees Celsius. Now, that's hot enough to melt aluminium, a metal, let alone if it was made of something like ice, like a typical comet. So, Pantheon is, for that and many other reasons, one of the most unusual objects in our solar systems. It seems to have the qualities of both an asteroid and a comet, at least based on its appearance and behaviour. Because Pantheon always appears in the dot in the sky, like pretty much all other asteroids out there. And it doesn't have a fuzzy blob with a tail like you expect from a comet. But Pantheon is actually is the source of the annual Geminid meteor shower that you actually see in early mid to December. Particles coming off that are actually caused by Pantheon itself. So meteor showers normally occur when Earth passes through the trail of dust left behind in a comet's orbit. Where and when they occur all has to do with when Earth's orbit crosses over that path of that particular body. In this case, Pantheon is thought to be the parent body of the Geminid meteor shower because its orbit around Earth is very, very similar to the orbit of the Geminid meteors. Now, in 1983 was when we first discovered Pantheon. But we've, since 1983, normally linked meteor showers to comets and not asteroids, which again makes Pantheon even more unusual. Now, at the time when Pantheon was first discovered, people thought that, well, maybe it was just a dead, burnt-out comet. But comets are normally red, not blue. And even though Pantheon's orbit as an asteroid is highly eccentric, it's not like you expect from a comet, which dives in all the way from the Cupia Belt to the frozen outreaches of our solar system before coming in. But it does release a tiny dust tail when it gets closer to the sun. But it's more like the process when you have a dry riverbed crackling in the afternoon heat, not like ice melting that you get with a comet. Which means that it sort of straddles this weird in-between space. It's an asteroid that behaves like an asteroid, but exhibits a lot of comet traits. It leaves behind a trail, which then becomes a meteor shower. It does also have this really bluish colour, which is again a colour not typical of asteroids. But it's not an a comet, even though it shows a lot of signs of being one, because it very clearly is an asteroid, because it heats up so much and is not made of ice. And all that just goes to show that you can't judge a book by its cover. And even events that are rare as a blue moon, like the strange behaviour of Pantheon, actually shows that things can be more than one thing at a time. It's not always a clear-cut binary choice between comet and asteroid. Sometimes you can exhibit behaviour that sort of blurs the line between these two things. This is some great work being done out of the University of Arizona. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out how satellites can survive strong geomagnetic storms. Plus, we found out about rare blue asteroids and even some mysterious dust clouds in the Lagrange Point. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.